We're going to discuss tonight the controversial topic of co-sleeping, or, or more, more precisely, bed sharing. Any, anyone who's a parent knows that virtually all aspects of parenting are heatedly, passionately debated by partisans on both sides, and uh, mommy wars, we often call them. When I had my daughter several months ago, nearly half a year ago, my wife went to a my wife went to a class on parenting recommended by her her doctor, and this was uh, what she called a crunchy class. They 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 were they were fond of the they they apparently leaned toward the the natural kind of you know homegrown uh, traditional ways of doing things. So one of the things they advocated for was mother and child bonding by, putting the, by, by, by letting the child sleep together in the bed uh, with the parent. My wife recoiled in horror. She remembered over the years we've been married, she says, you told me so many times there are so many cases in the halachic literature of babies dying because the mothers put them in bed with them and the mothers smothered them or choked them or squashed them or somehow killed them. How can anybody sleep with their, with their child in bed? And it's, uh, it's a great machlokas. The, 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 there are people who insist that that's the natural and normal and healthy way of doing things. It's great for the child. There are people who insist that it's terrible, that, 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 that's how you kill children. The consensus recommendation of the mainstream evidence-based scientific medical establishment is that it is a bad idea. The, the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, the CPSC, says you cannot do that. They, they, they have studies and, and analyses of all kinds of uh, cases and records and that, that kids die, there's suffocation, and, and there are other problems. American Academy of Pediatrics has looked at this repeatedly and they strongly advocate against putting children in the parents' beds. They say that, uh, they say that parents sleeping in the children, children sleeping in the parents' rooms is a very good idea. That, that, does re- that definitely does reduce uh, death and having them sleep in a different room when they're very little. However, putting them in the parents' beds is a really bad idea. They say when all bed sharing or surface sharing circumstances are included in meta-analyses, the risk of dying suddenly and unexpectedly is almost three times higher than room sharing without bed sharing. Then, in a concession to the opposing camp, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they understand and respect that many parents choose to routinely bed share for a variety of reasons, reasons, cultural preferences, a belief that it's healthier. However, as they politely put it, on the basis of the evidence, the AAP, the AAP is unable to recommend bed sharing under any circumstances. In particular, they warn about unintentional bed sharing. Parents can fall asleep while feeding their infant. Anyone who has ever had an infant will uh, nod their heads knowingly, and there, there certainly have been times where we've been uh, so tired that it's easy to just fall asleep. And my, my wife has told me she remembers waking up suddenly and bol- sitting up bolt upright and saying, where's my daughter? And Oh, she's in her crib. How did she get there? I have no recollection. Last I remember, I was on the couch holding her. So this kind of thing happens. They, they warn about it. They say that... It's still better to fall asleep in a bed than on a sofa. Sofas are really bad, apparently, for kids. All those cracks and, and cushions and so on are really bad for babies. So if you are going to fall asleep in bed, try to make sure there are no blankets in your bed. I don't know how realistic that is. No pillows, no anything. But uh, also, the longer duration, the worse it is. If you do fall asleep, then the, you're, you're advised, as soon as you wake up, to transfer the infant. 
So the, so the modern medical establishment, uh, evidence-based medicine based on studies and meta-analysis is, meta-analyses is against bed-sharing, against, you should put, her, put them in the same room, but not in the same bed. And as my wife noted, as we've discussed over the years, there are a number of terrible, terrible chuvas dealing with uh, babies who died while in their parents' bed. What was the, what is the halachic issue in these chuvas? So obviously we don't do capital punishment bismanazet, we don't even do gullus and eremikla bismanazet in the formal sense. However, the issue in these chuvas was tshuva. Chodesh El, we begin to prepare to do tshuva, prepare for Hashan Yom Kippur. Today we focus on the definition of tshuva, which is largely internal. We focus on azivus achet, on giving up the avera, and on kabbalah Asid, accepting on yourself to, be, to improve, and harata, on feeling remorse. We focus, aside from giving up the Avera and committing yourself to do better, we focus largely on the internal aspects of tshuva. To be fair, that is the classic definition of tshuva, as expressed by the Rambam and traditional sources. However, for many centuries, from the medieval period down till relatively recently, tshuva was much more rigorous. Tshuva involved penance. Tshuva involved uh, tshuva samishkol. Tshuva involved prescriptions of fasting and other types of... Uh, self-mortification, to atone for the Avera. And there is a very robust literature on tshuva going back to the, Ashk- the Hasidic Ashkenaz, the, the, the pietistic movement in medieval Ashkenaz, uh, formal recommendations of tshuva samishkol, what a person should do if he was guilty of various sins. The sins in question were usually pretty serious sins. Sexual transgressions and murder, manslaughter. Real murder, capital murder is not that common among Jews, but manslaughter, negligence, different types of causing, wrongful causing of death. There is a robust and rich literature in the poskim, in the, in the tshuva svarim, the, the, the tshuva in, uh, in both senses of the word, responsa literature and dealing with tshuva. The same poskim who deal with Basar Brachalav and Elchashabas, they were the ones who often wrote responsa recommending various forms of tshuva for people who had confessed to having committed various sins. Now, we don't really do this today. Today, again, we practice a kindler and gentler uh, form of Judaism, a softer and gentler form of Judaism. But for many centuries, from the medieval period down till a century or two ago, this was pretty standard. If someone committed a serious avera, he would consult a rav, a posek, and ask for tshuva, and the posek would prescribe an appropriate tshuva. Now, many of these tshuvas, especially dealing with manslaughter, Many of these tshuvas revolve largely around the question of fault. How much fault was there? How at fault is the person for, for this death? How much blame do we assign? In the past, we've actually studied some of these tshuvas. We discussed tshuvas involving manslaughter, involving firearms, the tshuva the Ramah, the Panamiras, about people who discharged firearms and accidentally killed uh, someone in their vicinity. So tonight, we're going to look at several tshuvas on the topic of co-sleeping and bed-sharing. Parents who, who did or who likely killed their children, mothers typically, who killed their children by placing them in bed with them. And the post can grapple with the question of what type of tshuva, if any, is appropriate for these, for these types of infractions. Now again, to, to our modern mind, it seems horrific. It's, it's bad enough that uh, the, the parent is probably consumed with guilt the parent will likely never get over the fact that uh, he or she blames him or herself for killing his child. And now we're going to say, and it's your fault, and now you should start fasting 40 days. 
um, Gil Student, Rabbi Gil Student, has has a very nice article on this. He published a few years ago, where he he raises this issue. He says he struggles to understand how a rabbi can tell a grieving mother or father that they bear some of the guilt for their loss. See, see, he, he says, why would you do that? And he discusses how that works. But again, halacha used to be a, a good deal. Judaism used to be practiced in a much more tougher and rigorous way than we do today in certain aspects. And as I said, there is a, a, a rich literature on ro- tshuva for wrongful death in general. And in particular, this case of mothers smothering or possibly smothering and suffocating babies, this has happened... Uh, Far too many times. I mean, one time is too many times, but this has happened. Uh, been recorded in a number of tshuvas. So the case, of course, goes back to Tanakh in Sefer Malachim, the story of the two women who came to King Solomon for his Solomonic wisdom. That uh, the two women each had a baby. One of them, one of them was dead in the morning. The question was which one had died. So the 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 navi mentions it was in the chake of the mother. That apparently, the the woman had been in close contact with the babies. But as, but as I've said, there are a number of tshuvas dealing with this topic in the response to literature over the past several hundred years. We're going to study, we're going to look at several of these tshuvas tonight. We're not going to get to all the literature. Perhaps we will look at some of the other opinions in a follow-up show. The, the tshuvas we're going to look at tonight are actually going to be some of the later tshuvas, and they are actually on the lenient side. Some of the earlier tshuvas are stricter and more rigorous about this, we're going to see some of the later tshuvas who are actually more lenient. So we're going to look at three tshuvas tonight. The Chasim Sofer in the early to mid-19th century, the Rav Pa'alim, the, the, that, the, the, that, the author of the Ben Eshchai, of Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, and a tshuva of the Dvar Leo, a Polish Rav, Rav Leo Lerman, also at the end of the 19th century. So beginning with the Chasim Sofer, he says, he was asked the following question. Higiani, al-dvar takola, a misfortune, shiyatsumi tachasi deisha, that arose with a woman. Heinika bena, she nursed her child. Many of these questions begin with nursing. The, even if the child sleeps in a bassinet or a crib, the woman takes the child into her lap, into her bed to nurse in the middle of the night, and then she either forgets to put him back or falls asleep or decides he's so fussy and she's going to keep him in bed with her. Sometimes they would even nurse while they're asleep. People seem to do that today as well. So for whatever reason, the woman took the child to nurse him. The child was 15 days old. Ben Tesvav Yamim, he was a real newborn. She took him in her arms to nurse him, the way women do, that they take their, that they take their child and they hold them in their arms, they, they hug them in their arms. Somehow she fell asleep. Midnight, she wakes up. She sees the child. The child is dead. And obviously, uh, she has a lot of uh, emotional feelings at that point. But eventually, the Shiloh comes to the Rav. Does she need tshuva? So, the, the question was posed to the Chatham Sofer by a rabbinic colleague. He tells his colleague that, that his colleague apparently had wanted to be lenient on... On, on, due to the child's age. The child is less than 30 days old. There is a doctrine in Chazal, we find all over in the Talmud, that a baby within 30 days of birth is considered tenuously alive. We're not sure if he is really a viable child, even if the birth, everything went well and he looks normal and healthy. But, but, but there is an idea that uh, we're not really sure that a person is uh, fully viable until 30 days. He's a Suffolk Nafel. He's a uh, possibility that he's really, uh, that he's really not going to make it. Uh, 
So the Shoel, the other Rav, had wanted to argue that there's grounds for leniency here because we don't even know that the child was really going to be viable in the first place. Obviously, the, the sin of murder or manslaughter is, 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 less, uh, is less severe when dealing with a non-viable child. Says the Chassam Sofer, that particular argument, Chassam Sofer is going to be lenient here, but this particular argument he rejects. He says, this is not, this is not a, a cogent argument, he says. The Gemara discusses different cases. Uh, the, 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 it's a complicated sugya. There are, there, are, there are many variations on the question of Nefel. Do we know that he's a full-term baby? Do we not know he's a full-term baby? Did he just die? Did, did an accident happen to him? So the way the Gemara explains, if an accident happened to him, like Ari, he was killed by a lion, the fact that he wasn't 30 days old, there's no reyes, so there's no reason to believe he wasn't liable. He hadn't reached 30 days yet. If he dies, if he just uh, gets sickly and dies, that itself indicates he might not have been a fully viable child. But if he was a robust and hale and hearty baby and just happened to get, uh, to get, to get into an accident with a lion or something, then, then there's no reason to, to assume Nefel, even though he's not 30 days. The conclusion of the Gemara is, Kuli that's how we paskin, he says. That the, that's how we paskin, that if an accident happens and there's no reyes whatsoever, just because he's not 30 days, we don't really entertain the possibility that he was not viable. He says, certainly, so certainly, if we, if we, if we knew the mother had killed him, if we knew for a fact the mother smothered him, then certainly that's like Achlari, that's like a case where he was the victim of a lion. There's no reyes whatsoever. We know exactly how he died. He died by, by the mother's uh, unfortunate accident. And then, uh, and then, certainly, the, the halacha would be that, that he has a presumption of viability. Even if we don't know how he died. Even in this case, we, we, the mother doesn't know for sure that she killed him. The, the mother woke up at midnight and saw the baby was dead. Maybe he was just a sickly child. Maybe he just died. Maybe, 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 maybe in such a case, we can entertain the possibility that he was an AFL, that he was not a viable child. He says, no. Mikal makam talina dechanika meis. If there's no actual race, if we don't see he just died of unexplained circumstances, you know, sudden infant death, if we, uh, if we see he was with the mother and we know that that's a plausible explanation for his death, that's what we assume happened. Talina, we assume that it was uh, death by mother. To Vlad, Malia, Yaldan, most babies are viable. It's much more plausible to assume that the mother accidentally killed him than to assume that he was one of those relatively uncommon, sickly, in those times, obviously, infant mortality rate was much higher Certainly in the, in the Chassam Sofer's time, and certainly in Talmudic times, infant mortality was uh, orders of magnitude larger than it is today. But even in those times, even in those times, the Chassam Sofer says, there's, if we don't know how he died, we assume the much more plausible scenario that he was a viable child who was accidentally killed by the mother. That's what we assume. And therefore, the fact that in theory, he might not have been a, a viable child, the halacha does not really consider that since there's no evidence for that. Therefore, the first argument of the Chassam Sofer's correspondent, maybe he wasn't really a viable child, is not plausible, and therefore it doesn't really matter, the Chassam Sofer says, if he was 15 days or 45 days or a year. The point is, he has a presumption of viability. We assume the mother killed him, and therefore, so far, we assume the mother is guilty of manslaughter and the mother is, uh, requires tshuva. However, he says, Avomi tamachar nearly lahakel. Lemaisa, the Chassam Sofer, is Mekel. He has a different argument. He says, Tshuvas Maril. So the Maril apparently is one of the early sources for this uh, rule that, that if a mother is guilty of, of uh, negligent homicide, of accidental manslaughter of her child, that she needs Tshuva. So the Maril's language is, 
Stam Isha, Nemar Stam, the language of the Marilla is simply Isha Shamatza Etzla Vladmes. A woman wakes up and finds her dead child in her bed. So he says, Yesh Lamar, we can limit the case of the Maril. A baby's supposed to sleep in a cradle. See the policy recommendation of the AAP. Babies should not be co-sleeping in bed sharing. Says the Chasim Sofer, that's what the Maril is talking about. She has no excuse. If she put him in her bed, that's called recklessness, and that's why she's obligated in tshuva. Why is she violating the recommendations of the pediatricians? A person has strict liability, which again, many posts can say it's not absolutely strict liability if, she, if you're completely not at fault. We don't blame you. But, the per- but certainly a person has, when it comes to manslaughter, when it comes to personal injury, a person has a very high uh, degree of liability. And, it, and if we have this objection to your conduct, why did you put him in your bed? You're not supposed to do that. There's no reason for it. Therefore, we hold her liable. Again, liable at least that she's required to do tshuva, some level of moral culpability. Havalalayunit, she should have been more careful. Avalishazu, he says, but in our case, our case is different. She didn't put him in her bed for no reason. She put him in her bed to nurse. Ishazu lachasio benzroseh, she took him in her arms, lahaniko, in order to nurse him, which is a perfectly, uh, perfectly legitimate thing to do. The Chassam Sofer seems to be assuming that she didn't choose to deliberately co-sleep with the child. She would have put him back. She knew he was supposed to put the baby in the crib. But she was Nensebonashina. She fell asleep. She simply succumbed to sleep. That's an important assumption. I don't know if that was so clear in the... I don't know if that was so clear in the... in, in the Shiloh. In the Shiloh, he just said, she took him to nurse him. And then she woke up at midnight, and he was dead. She doesn't say why she left him in bed, but the Chatham Sofer seems to be assuming that she was Nensebonashina. Other posts can adopt this phrasing as well. The, the earlier posts can, that maybe we'll get to next week, the, the Masas Binyamin, the Vodatikar Shuni, I believe they debate this question, of, they possibly debate this question of whether we blame her for falling asleep or not. But the Chatham Sofer says, the, originally taking, her out of the cri- taking the baby out of the crib and into the bed, that was normal. She did that. That was appropriate because she had to nurse him. Falling asleep is an onus, not her fault. Taking him out initially, he reiterates, was done for the child's benefit to nurse her. The 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 teeth was still between the was, 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 was still between the child's uh, still between the child's uh, between the child's lips. Vanessa she fell asleep. not her fault. Falling asleep, especially, I suppose he means especially a parent who's at his, uh, at, at, at her, uh, at, at her you know, breaking point. Falling asleep is not something we can blame her for. And then he brings another analogy. He says, Chazal said, when a physician injures, uh, kills, when a physician kills a patient accidentally, he, uh, he, if something goes wrong and the patient dies, so the, the, the physician is not guilty of manslaughter. He doesn't have to go to Gullus. He's Potter. He's Potter from Gullus. He's, he was Oseb he, he was doing, he was operating for the patient's benefit in an authorized way. Therefore, he's, therefore the, the, the halach is he's Potter from Gullus. He's not considered even a shogik. He's considered an onus, basically. Mikolshkin hacha. Certainly, therefore, the, this woman as well, taking the child was a responsible thing to do. Falling asleep is considered an onus. Now again, the, the research thing is malpractice. Halacha recognizes in certain cases the rofe will be at fault. 
But if we can't point to any, the Chazam Sefer seems to be understanding, if we can't point to any irresponsible, negligent decision, course of conduct by the Rofe, then he's going to be held not liable under the doctrine of Onus, of Osibrishus, Kolshkein Hacha, certainly this woman, what is she supposed to do? You have to nurse babies, that's what, that's what babies need. He's 15, he's 15 days old, and he has to nurse every, uh, he has to nurse pretty frequently. So she has to nurse him. What's she supposed to do? You know, lean over him while he's in his crib? I'm taking, him, take, taking the baby into the bed in the middle of the night to nurse is normal. Afterward, she fell asleep. He repeatedly says, uh, Ones, he uses the word Ones uh, several times, Nensa Ba'onashina, Nensa Bashina, not her fault. And therefore, we are going to, this is a reason for holding the woman exempt from any, from any kind of culpability, even moral culpability. Again, what would he say if, if she deliberately chose to co-sleep with the baby because he was fussy? I don't know. That maybe he would say she is responsible. But at least in the case where, as he reiterates two or three times, Nensa Bonashina, he says it's not her fault, and she fundamentally she bears no moral culpability. However, at the very end of the tshuva, he he adds, he 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 concludes, he says, Mikalmakom Tasik Tikunim. She should make some tikkunim. Tikkunim here, I think, means some forms of penance, of tshuva, tzedakah maybe. But, uh, but she should do something, even though she's not a full-blown, full-blown uh, manslaughterer. She, still, she should do some tshuva. Avali says, lola batanis. One of the most common forms of penance used to be fasting. We'll see in some of the other tshuvas they deal with fasting. He does not recommend that she undertake fasting. Particularly, says achar She's a Yaledist. You know, we routinely, the Yaledist is often exempt from fasting on even the formal fast days because it's, 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 not, it's not good for them. So certainly, he says, given that she's not really at fault, and she, fundamentally she's not really at fault, and she's still a, 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 a convalescent, uh, a convalescent uh, mother, therefore, he says, let her accept certain minor forms of penance, but not, uh, not Tanis. Hashem Hashem should grant her atonement. Every annually on the year of the, 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 the child's yard site, she should do something good. Presumably, he means something like tzedakah or learning Torah, sponsor learning Torah or something. She should do something for a tikkun, for his neshama. And the Saravona, the Chatas Techupar, by doing this, whatever residual Avera she has shall be removed and shall be atoned. And that's what he recommends. And he concludes with a bracha with condolences to the woman. May Hashem heal the, the, the brokenness of his nation. May he gladden the heart of this uh, devastated woman. May he grant her joy of children, other children, and grandchildren, and so on. This tshuva was written in the year Tafkuf Tzadi Gimalamid. That is 18, I'm not sure, I, 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 I think something's off about this, uh, about this abbreviation, but it was written in the early, early to mid-19th century. That is the tshuva of the, of the Chasm Sofer. The, the next tshuva is a tshuva of the tshuva of the Rav Palam. That's Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, the great Iraqi posik, the great Svardik posik of Baghdad. He has a tshuva, he deals with, uh, the, 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 the bulk of his tshuva is actually about something else, a different type of manslaughter case. The bulk of his tshuva is a hair-raising story about a, about a child who had, child had some kind of problem, and there was, he, he was in some kind of medical crisis, and there was a recommendation to give him a certain medicine, 
Turned out that medicine killed him. The parents felt terrible. They were the ones who killed him. So he, 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 as I recall, he basically says the parents have no responsibility whatsoever. They followed medical advice. They, even though there's some basis of being machmer, he says the parents should not be machmer. We don't want to discourage people from following medical advice. We don't want to paralyze parents in the future who will say, who knows, maybe I'll make a mistake. Remember what happened to so-and-so? He made a mistake, and, he had to, and, and they were, and they were of him in tshuva. So to avoid any imputation of guilt, you shouldn't adopt any kind of tshuva, I think he says. But at the very, very end of the tshuva, he deals with another case of a woman who, again, who uh, apparently smothered the, or potentially smothered the child. Isha Achas, a woman came to me, says, this child was not an Eiffel, he was two months old already, she was sleeping, he was sleeping at her side, and in the morning, she found him dead, she doesn't know what happened, maybe she rolled over on him and slept on him, maybe she, in her sleep, placed her hand over his nose and smothered him like that, Maybe he died on his own of SIDS or something un- unrelated to her. And she wants she wants some kind of atonement, some kind of penance for what she has done. We don't even know if she did anything here. It's possible. It's possible not. We don't even know what happened. So the Rav Palim does assume that she should adopt Chuva. And he actually does uh, impose fasting. She was not quite as uh, close to, to labor to the birth as the Chasam Sofer's case. Chasam Sofer's case, the child was 15 days old. Here he was two months old. So he does actually require what, at least by our standards, would be a fairly rigorous uh, course of tshuva. She should fast. Tisane mem dalad yom nefradim zeacharzeh, 44 distinct days consecutively. Uh, well, he, say, he says he says separate days. So I'm not sure if separate days means consecutive eating at night or means just pick different days. But she should fast 44 days. And at the end of the Sophie Meitania Shalah, at the end of her 44 days of fasting, Tazmin Tesva Benadim Ksherim, she should invite 15, uh, 15 uh, upstanding individuals. She is Anu Biyom Membez and Gimel Mamdalitz. At the end of her course, she should bring in 15 other people to fast along with her. This poor woman, bad enough that she blames herself for killing her child, she has to fast 44 days. Then, he had, then she has to publicize what she's done, apparently, to, to, to 15 other people who are, going to, who, are, who are going to agree to fast three days more for her, for, on her behalf. She should pay them, she should give them tzedakah, because she is anu. And they should recite the formal acceptance of fasting. They should say, I'm accepting Tanis Yachid, Lamachar, from Elos Hashachar, Tetzel Chavim, from, from uh, daybreak until nightfall, because of the Tikkun, of the Chait, of the Isha, Plonis Bas Plonis, Shechata bin Shofak Damim, that, that she sinned in the matter of uh, murder, of manslaughter. So I guess she can't even say, I, wanna, I, I want you to fast for an unspecified Chait. She apparently has to tell them specifically what her Avera was, that she killed someone. Shofik Dam Ha'adam Ba'adam. The language we say in a fast days in general, Hashem should count the loss of uh, uh, the loss of, uh, of body tissue of chelav and dam as if we brought it on the mizbech as an atonement for the woman. Plonus pas plonus. Again, he'll have to reiterate she sinned in the matter of manslaughter, and I, and you should consider it as though I had all the kavanos, all the appropriate kavanos. They say this elaborate fila. And uh, and he goes on. They they, they 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 do certain other rituals. He says they should learn they should learn certain uh, 
certain passages of the Torah, and, and tells you exactly what to do, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And then he says, uh, he goes through an elaborate, uh, an, an elaborate course of uh, what she should do, what they should learn, when, and so on, and what, what, what philos they should say, Tkiya Shofar, good. Then he says, toward the end, he says, if she's unable to fast for 44 days, she should she should fast three days out of those three days where the 15 people are fasting, and they should do a form of kaparis with a chicken, like many people do uh, in Kippur time. They should wave a chicken around her head, and they should say, and they should read psukim, uh, and so on and uh, they should check the chicken, and she should make the blessing of Kisi Adam, I guess to do the mitzvah, or maybe Kabbalistic significance. And then he says, uh, then he quotes the Chassim Sofer, that, uh, that, that she should do some kind of tikkun on the yard side every year. And she does all this, he says, V'ashem yisparach lo'yimna tov l'holchem b'tamim v'yar enena bar teraso. If she makes this good faith effort to do tshuva, Hashem will not withhold uh, his goodness, the, the light of his countenance from her. And, uh, and, it, and, and if she does this, uh, then, then hopefully she will receive atonement. So that is the second shuva of the Rav Palm. He is rather more uh, inclined to be strict with this woman than the Chasim Sofer was, but this is his recommendation for, for, the, for what the woman should do. Third shuva, final shuva we'll study tonight, is a shuva in the Sefer Dvar Elio. There are several chuvas by several chuvas farm by that name. The Dvaralio or Rubilio Kalatskin is also a Polish rav, is a great favorite of mine. This is a lesser known rav, Rubilio Lerman. He was a distinguished Talmud Chacham in Poland, a Hasidic Talmud Chacham of that time. He was also asked about one of these questions about mothers who uh, likely smothered, possibly likely smothered their children by co sleeping. Sheila, he was also consulted by a rabbinic colleague. Very similar to the Chasim Sofer's case. She took the baby to nurse him. She took him, I guess, from his crib, from his, wherever he was sleeping. She took him into her bed uh, to nurse, like women, as women do. In the morning, she found that the child was dead. Assuming she requires some kind of shuva. So what should we do? What, uh, what should we prescribe? What form of tshuva should we prescribe for this poor woman? So his rabbinic colleague, who presented the question to him, your, your understanding is, he says, we treat her as a shogeges. She's obviously not uh, amazing. She's not, she didn't deliberately kill her child, of course, but she's a shogeges. She is considered a, a shogeg, a shogeges, who bears substantial responsibility for what she's done. A person who, who violates Shabbos b'shogeg brings a carbon chatas, a person who commits manslaughter bring has to go to Gullus. A person, when there's no Gullus, a person who kills Bishogig, that's what we have all these poskim, that they're high of uh, a fairly serious, a fairly rigorous course of tshuva. He says, as many poskim, many poskim have said, not really the ones we've seen tonight, but uh, as many poskim have said, earlier poskim, that we treat a woman who, who kills a child in bed as a shogegas, and Amida. they go even further, Davis Krovel amazed. We consider her not only Shogegas, not only is she considered somewhat blameworthy, we consider her grossly negligent, almost amazed, guilty of uh, you know, criminal, some form of criminal homicide. We consider her Krovel amazed, a terrible indictment of the poor woman. Omnam, he says, says Rabbi Lerman, 
Amnam levavi lokein yidna. I do not agree. I do not think it is correct to consider a woman who does this to be guilty of of krov lamezid and not even not even really to be considered a shogik. Why not? So he goes through a somewhat intricate analysis. He says he begins by bringing a rambam. I, I didn't excerpt the whole chuv in the handouts. He begins by bringing a rambam. The rambam says that if a father in the course of disciplining his child, they not only was chuva more rigorous back then, discipline was more rigorous back then as well. As we've discussed previously, uh, sparing the rod and spoiling the child was a, uh, was a real rule back then. Mishle is full of references to that. The Gemara talks about that. Corporal punishment was considered normal and necessary and proper. So the Rambam rules, based on statements of Chazal, if a father kills his child kills his child by, uh, by striking him or something like that, he goes to Gullus, like any, like, like, as any other perpetrator of manslaughter. But Medvar Mamurim Rambam rules, Kishahar Gush Limut, when he kills him not in the course of teaching him, or he's teaching him something, uh, something supplementary, something not essential, he's teaching him how to sail a boat, or how to, uh, how to do woodworking or something, not his primary uh, core core skills that the child has to learn. If he was, if he was uh, corporally punishing his child in the course of teaching him Torah or Chachma, in the Rambam, the, when the Rambam uses the word Chachma, it's often a little bit, uh, it's often ambiguous, what does he mean? When, when, when most uh, Chachma Israel use the word Chachma, they typically mean Chachma Satara. Rambam, of course, placed a great value on Chachma in general, other types of Chachma, not literature, but uh, philosophy, astronomy, math, physics, and so on. So when the Rambam says Chachma, he often means those disciplines, what the Greeks call Chachma, the Greeks call literature Chachma also, but the music, but the Rambam often means science, physics, and metaphysics, math. Certainly here, where he says, Lambda Torah, O Chachma, the implication clearly is that Chachma is not synonymous with Torah, or he's teaching him a trade, and he strikes him and kills him in, in the course of any of those three pedagogical activities, umes potter. Since the father is engaged in a permitted and important task of teaching his child Torah, Chachma, and a trade, therefore he is potter. Based on a Gemara and Marcus, the Gemara and Marcus makes this point that it says that uh, if the father teaches his son Torah, it's, it's a mitzvah. They say, why should he go to Golas? He should be potter from Golas. So it says he's teaching him carpentry, shulia denagri. So the Gemara says, well, shulia denagri is chayusi to lamde. It's important to, to teach your child a trade. Rashi says it's a mitzvah, it's a mitzvah for, for a father to teach his child a trade. So the Gemara says, gomrim nusachrita. He really has a trade. This is simply a, a, a supplementary skill. So it's not necessary, so he doesn't have the dispensation of essential pedagogy. So says the, says the Dvaralio, applying this to our case, a woman who's nursing her child? That's certainly essential. How's a child supposed to live without getting nursed? He says, certainly it's chiyusi de tinoku. That's, for, for a baby, it's just as important to be nursed as it is for an adult to learn Torah, Chachman, or at least Umnas. Therefore, the woman was engaged in a permitted endeavor, in, a, in more than permitted, in a, in a, uh, in, in, in a, in a mitzvah, in, in, a, in an important and essential uh, handling of the child. And therefore, even if something went wrong, she still is Petura. So the so then, then he has an interesting discussion. The Gemara seems to say if a person has one trade, the second trade is not really a mitzvah. 
Why he says elsewhere, we don't always know. Job's not always easy to find. Maybe, maybe having a second trade will, will increase his ability to find jobs. So he goes back and forth on that. He says that the, he goes back and forth. It's a suffix. We don't know, he says. But Benidon Shalfanenu, he says, that nursing was essential. There's no question. She has to nurse the child. And she nursed him before she went to sleep. Why did she, why did she keep the child? Uh, why did she keep the child in bed? So he says, maybe that's a problem because maybe nursing him is certainly essential. But why did she co-sleep with him after she finished nursing? So maybe we'll argue that just like the Gemara says, a secondary trade, even though it's helpful and useful, since it's not essential, you don't have the p'tur of, uh, of mitzvah kavod, of, of, of engaging in essential activity. Maybe here as well, he says, nursing the child is essential. But co-sleeping with the child after you finish nursing, that's not essential. So maybe she should be considered a bas golos. Maybe she should be considered guilty of uh, at least a show gig, and she should be high of golos and tshuva. However, he says that no, the, 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 the keeping the child in bed is more important than that. He says that having a second umnus is really not that useful. He says it just to help you make more money. That's really not such a mitzvah. That's not really so essential. That that uh, having having a backup umnus is nice, but it's not it's not at all essential. He says. But he says that. But he says here, that that he says here, he says that the she took the child for it was for his it was for his benefit to nurse more or to, or to uh, help him sleep or something like that. That is certainly it's a mitzvah. He says that is certainly a, again a noble and proper activity. Again, I, I don't know what he would say if it was if, if he agreed that it was against the the pediatrician's recommendations. It's not in the best interest of the child to do this. But it's an error of judgment, I guess. She thought it would be. Some people do believe it's for the best interest of the child. People have challenged the AAP and the study it relies on. Some people believe it is beneficial for the child. So he says that's mitzvah ka'avdis. That's more important and more essential than teaching a child a, a second backup trade. And therefore, he says, she is not a bas golos at all. In the course of this tshuva, in the paragraph I just uh, ran through, he makes a very interesting point. He discusses the question of the... The mitzvah to teach a child to swim. My wife has been uh, working very hard for the last couple of years to, to arrange swimming lessons for Simcha. She considers it imperative that, uh, that he learn how to swim. Baruch Hashem, Simcha has uh, learned, uh, has gotten some basic, uh, basic fluency in swimming. But my wife is right. The Gemara says that there's, it's Machlokas Tanam actually in the Gemara, it seems, Yesh Omrim. A father has to teach his son Torah and an omnis, and Yesh Omrim Lashito Bamayim, to swim in water. It's actually a machlokis, whether we pass him like that or not. It's not entirely clear. But Rashi says that the reason he has to know how to swim is maybe someday he'll, be, he'll take a sea voyage, a, a, a voyage by ship, and maybe the, the ship will sink, and maybe he'll be in danger if he doesn't know how to swim. So even though there are harbase fakers, he says, maybe he'll never take an ocean voyage, and, and a voyage on a ship, and even if he does, most ships don't sink, only one in a thousand. It's still a mitzvah. It's, it's still a mitzvah for the father to teach the child. So certainly he says that the, that the case of the mother helping the child nurse, helping him stay in bed a little bit longer, he assumes that's for the benefit of the child. Not sure exactly what he means, what, what the harvacha was, why exactly uh, that... Uh, apparently he was, con- he was continuing to nurse after he, after he fell asleep. He says after she fell asleep he would continue to nurse, even though he had a basic uh, amount of milk that he could survive. 
But uh, sometimes babies continue to nurse when they're with their mothers in bed, apparently. So that he calls harvacha. It's, it's a little bit extra milk. And that itself, he says, that, that's analogous to learning how to swim. It's, uh, it's not necessarily uh, an absolute need, but it's something that could be beneficial for the child. It, those are both examples of things that are more important than having a backup trade, than having a second, uh, that, 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 than having a second trade. That, the, that uh, having a trade, when you already have a sufficient trade, there's no real use for it. Just to have a hobby, to have another thing to do if you get bored, that's not really a need. But having something which can give you a positive benefit, even if, it's, even if it involves several stakos, like the, like the swimming, or even, if it, or, or even if it's just nursing a little bit more, all that is considered the benefit of the child, he says, and the benefit of the child, and therefore she would, she would, be, she would have the dispensation of a father who kills in the course of doing mitzvahs for his child, teaching him important things, and therefore the woman is exempt from, from culpability. He then discusses the question why the Rambam left out the halacha of teaching the child a trade. The Rambam, does, the Rambam apparently doesn't paskin explicitly that a father has to teach a child a trade. He says, the Rambam is, this halacha, the Rambam says that if the father teaches the child a trade and hits him and kills him, he's potter. And the Gemara makes it clear that's only because teaching him a trade is a mitzvah. If, if someone else is uh, teaching someone else's child a trade, if you, if you teach in a trade school and you, and, and you hit one of your students and kill him, then, then you're chayef. Because you don't have a mitzvah to teach other, people, ch- ch- other people's other people trade. Your own child, there's an actual mitzvah, and that's why you are putter if you kill him. So that's where the Rambam is uh, alluding to this requirement to teach your child a trade. Then he says, why did the Rambam leave out the swimming halacha? Why didn't he bring the halacha that you have to teach him how to swim? So as I said, post can actually debate whether it's a chayef or not. But whether we pass in Tzachiv or not, so he, see, he, see, he, he goes back and forth a little bit. He says that, uh, that maybe the Ram Paskin is not a mitzvah because it's only a Svexveka, so it's not really a mitzvah. Okay, I'll call upon him. This is the position of the Dvar Elio, Rebbe Elio Lerman. He says a woman who was nursing her child and left him in bed. Again, he is, so the Chassam Sofer assumed she left him in bed because of onus. He assumes that, he let, that, that, that leaving him in bed is it's helpful, it's useful for the child's well-being, to continue nursing in bed and to be with his mother, that that's a positive and useful and constructive thing to do, as many of the many of, as, as many parenting uh, gurus think today. Again, not the mainstream medical establishment, but many of the, I'm not sure what the right word for them is, many of the the crunchier, my wife calls them, uh, people recommend such things. So again, so he says, since that is, that is constructive and for the benefit of the child, you have the dispensation of, of the Rambam, that, that someone who's doing something positive for the child, even if it goes terribly wrong and he kills him as potter, to her too, the woman was doing something good for her child, even though it wasn't something essential and absolutely necessary, it was something unquestionably good for the child, he says, and even though it went terribly wrong and she killed him, she is nevertheless petura from Gullus and therefore petura from a rigorous form of tshuva. Then he brings the Chassam Sofer, who compares it to a physician who kills, who doesn't go to Gullus, because which, which is really a very similar argument to his argument, that, that, that a person who's trying to do the right thing and something goes wrong doesn't go to Gullus. For some reason, he objects to the Chassam Sofer's formulation. He says it's, it's not, that's not a good analogy. The, the physician killed in the course of his treatment. The treatment was what he was supposed to do, and he killed in the course of treatment. That's why he's potter. The woman didn't kill the child by nursing. She killed him by smothering him, which is different. But he still feels that his argument, a slightly different argument, is, is stronger, that as long as she killed, as, as long as the accident happened in the course of conduct, which was ultimately for the, for the good of the child, nursing him and letting him co-sleep and bed share, 
he feels is good for the child, he will have the disp- she will have the dispensation of the Rambam that that the dispensation of the Rambam that, that someone who is doing something for the benefit of the child, something important and useful for the benefit of the child, even if it's not strictly essential, is going to be potter patura if anything goes wrong. Then he brings another argument to hold the mother exempt. He says that the Gemara brings a, a din in Makus in the laws of Gullus. The Gemara says that if you throw something and you hit somebody, you throw a stone and it hits somebody in the head and kills him, the umatza, the stone, finds somebody's head and kills him, you're, you're not amazed, you're a shogig though, you're, you acted recklessly, you're chay of Gullus. The Gemara says, prat atmo, umatza, prat atmo, if you threw the stone and then you threw a stone into the air and then someone opened the window while the stone was midair and stuck his head out, you are exempt, even though you can argue what you did was still reckless, but if there was some degree of, I guess we would call this contributory negligence, the person stuck his head out into the path of the stone, you are potter. Here as well, he says, that very likely what happened was it was the kid, the child, who rolled over and got himself in an unfortunate situation. That's very likely what happened that the kid likely rolled over and got himself stuck, he rolled, or rolled over into his mother and wedged himself in and couldn't breathe. So he says that also the mother is Petura. She didn't, she didn't necessarily smother him. It could be he smothered himself by rolling into her. Again, I don't, I don't know why he thinks that's more likely, but it's at least a possibility, he says. It's even Matsu, he says. So that's likely what happened. That's another reason to hold the mother exempt. He makes the obvious counter-argument. He says, well, but by putting him in bed, where she knows that can happen, he's a baby. He's a, he, he doesn't know any better. So... By putting him into bed, we're, we're, that, that's just an accident waiting to happen. So maybe she is liable for that because she should realize this is just a tragedy waiting to happen. He says no. He says she, this has happened to her many times in the past. She has a chazaka. She, has, uh, she, she had a number of children before this that she kept, that she co-slept with and bed-shared with. This never happened before. So maybe she was wrong in doing it the first few times, but once she saw that it, that it, that, that it doesn't usually happen... Again, this is a somewhat uh, problematic argument to make. I mean, a lot of unsafe things, most of the time you'll be okay. You drive without a seatbelt, you, you bike without a helmet. There are a lot of things you can do that 9 out of 10 times or 99 out of 100 times you'll be fine. But it's still considered uh, reckless and irresponsible because the chances are significant, even if they're relatively low. Okay, but he says another far on her behalf that she can say this, that, that this doesn't usually happen. This, I, I did this many times before and everything was okay. And therefore, that's another argument that she relied on the Chazaka. He says, even though he brings the Yushalmi, the Yushalmi says that if, uh, if I go to sleep and I see there's someone else near me, and, and, and then I realize that if I go to sleep, I might roll over and hit him. So he says, that's my fault. That, that, that I'm not an onus. I should realize, even though when I'm asleep, it's not my fault. I should realize this could have happened. That's Karav Lamezid. But in our case, again, he says that she, she doesn't have to anticipate that this is likely to happen. It happened for years, he says. She, she was co-sleeping and bed-sharing for years. She had the right to say that I did not imagine this would happen, he says. And we can call her an onus. So because of all these forests, because of all these forests that she was engaged in a legitimate and positive activity of nursing and helping the child, because the child himself may have contributed to his unfortunate demise, because she had a, a, a long-established uh, history of doing this safely, because of all these arguments, he says... She would not be Chayavis Gullus. She's not considered guilty of real manslaughter. Uvidvar Tshuva, he says, you want to know about the Tshuva? He says, again, I'm not sure what he was discussing until now. We don't actually go to Gullus today. But apparently he was, apparently he was describing a more rigorous form of Tshuva until now. 
he says, so she's not really at fault. The important thing to understand is, she's not really considered a shogeges. In his judgment, similar to that of the Chassam Sofer, for different reasons, she's not really considered a real shogeges. She's really an onus. Regarding tshuva, he says, hello, shifrin, shal tzadikim, psuchin, lefanov. That's a common rabbinic pun. The, the Gemara says about Rosh Hashanah, sifrin, shal tzadikim, are open at Rosh Hashanah. The svarim in which tzadikim's names are written and judged are open at Rosh Hashanah. This is often used to mean the svarim that were written by tzaddikim, meaning the, the, the wealth of halachic literature, Torah literature. You want to know what to do for tshuva, he says. There's a well-trodden literature, he said. This is a well-trodden topic with an established literature. Halo sifrin shel tzaddikim psuchim lefanov. You can just read the svarim and, and, and learn appropriate forms of tshuva. So his basic conclusion is he doesn't really think she's at fault. He thinks that she's largely an onus, and, and there, are, there are a variety of reasons not to consider her a shogeges. However, he she may, he implies, she may, it may be appropriate for her to adopt some tshuva, like the Chassam Sofer also says, she should do some, uh, Chassam Sofer also said that she should ideally adopt some form of, of tshuva, mild ones, Rav Palm said major tshuva, he says, go look in the Svarim, you'll see, you'll see tshuva, v'tikuyam v'ashem yislachla, and may it be fulfilled in her that Hashem will forgive her, the Yerapi Shever Bas once again, he, he ends with a bracha, he, he blesses her, may Hashem heal the the tragedy of the daughter of his people. So may, certainly may, may we never hear of such cases, may, uh, may these cases remain history, although as I said, uh, I, I do plan to return to this topic at least once more and discuss some of the other tshuvas, some of the earlier and perhaps more, somewhat more stringent tshuvas on this topic as well.